Welcome man, to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. Hope everyone had a great holiday weekend. Um, I know I treated myself on Thanksgiving. I've been uh, working out a lot more recently and eating a lot better, but hey, you gotta you gotta treat yourself sometimes. And, and Thanksgiving, I I definitely treated myself. So hope everyone uh, is doing well and glad we. Glad to be back on track with the podcast again. Um, you know this this week's episode is a fun one for me. It's it's something that I'm passionate about. Um, I enjoy helping players uh, myself with the recruiting process. And uh, Walter Beatty, who is someone who has been a coach uh, who over for over 30 years, he's been helping families and players play college baseball and helping them with the recruiting process for for over 25 or 30 years, I believe. He just came out with a book on the recruiting process specifically. It's called Committed, The Guide to Developing College-Ready Recruits from Middle School through High School. I'll have that link in the show notes. I just got done. I just got done with the book. It was fantastic read. I mean, so detailed, but it was put in a very simplistic format, so it's easy to understand. So, if you're a parent out there, or you're a coach, or a player listening to this, and you're either a in the recruiting process or b going to be in the recruiting process in the next couple of years, I I highly highly recommend you go and get this book. It's again, it, it has it everything in it about the recruiting process. Walter's son, um, you know, was a, was a prominent college recruit, and so Walter shares some good stories about you know what to stay away from, and you know over recruiting and how it is a real thing. Um, you know, we also get into travel baseball and why you shouldn't play it before you're 14 years old. Um, early committing, you know, what's what's the benefit to committing early to a school from a player's perspective, um, you know, especially before their junior year. There really isn't any, um, you know, handling the recruiting process. And so we go through all these different elements in this in this episode. It's, it's extremely valuable. Again, appreciate Walter coming on. He puts out some great content on Twitter. Um, his at Twitter handle is at BaseballLifer11. So give him a follow there. Um, and so I'm excited to, uh, to share this one with everyone listening. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, here is my episode with Walter Beatty. All right, we now welcome on Walter Beatty. Walter, thanks for coming on the show. Patrick, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to to allow me to to join you today. So I actually um, I faced your son actually in college. I played college baseball at Xavier. We went to a regional okay. at Vanderbilt. Ah, that, that was one of the better games. Yeah, it was a night game, Friday night game. Uh, yeah. He struck me out my first at bat. I got on the second at bat though. I hit a six hopper to the shortstop and almost beat it out. Um, but no, he, he had, he was one of the nastiest pitchers I, uh, I ever faced and just incredible stuff. Um, so it was, it was a fun night, great atmosphere, but yeah, I do. I do remember facing him and uh, man, he was good. Yeah, that was uh, that was a great regional. Uh, obviously that was one of his better nights as a, uh, college student athlete so uh, as a dad I was out in center field literally out in center field 
um, and watching that whole game. And it, it, I, if I remember correctly, it kind of got off to a late start due to weather. Yeah, um, it did. So you were you? I was playing left field. Were you one of those guys making fun of me for balding and, and left oh, field? Oh no. <laughs> okay. Actually, I have kind of a superstition, um, and that superstition is I try not to talk to anybody while while Tyler's pitching, and especially mm. if he's going good. So that night he was uh, pretty much going with. Uh, with all guns a blazing. So I didn't say too much, to be honest with you. I just kind of sat there and observed. So you said center field. Is that you, you would always, would you always sit in center field when he was pitching? I was always either in right field or center field. On that particular evening, I, I felt it would be best uh, because there wasn't as many people around. Right field was kind of congested and crowded. Uh, so I felt it would probably be in my best interest to be in center field. Uh, I always sat in the outfield. I, I always really? found that. Yeah, I always found that it was uh, I was very superstitious, as most dads are. And I always felt that uh, um, I could kind of observe and, and see the whole field and, and kind of get a vibe um, and kind of just enjoy uh, by watching and not being as involved behind home plate. So uh, that was just kind of one of my my quirks as a baseball dad. Well, it's interesting you say that because I wonder if that helped Tyler in the sense because he couldn't, you know, probably see you, right? He's he's facing, you know, the batter, you know, and if you were sitting right behind home plate, you know, he could potentially, you know, I wonder if that's that's an issue where some players, you know, they see their parents, you know, making commotion or this or that after they do something right or wrong, and and that affects them when they're on the mound. Well, I can tell you, I kind of learned when Tyler was a little eager. Um, I've told this story before, just. A video uh, had surfaced um, of me, and I, I could hear me talking, and so therefore I knew Tyler could hear me talking. I'm pretty sure our children can hear us if we're whispering. I mean, it's just kind of an innate thing that kids can kind of find where their parents are. So as he got older, uh, I tried to be, um, you know, left field line, right field line, center field, if the ballparks allowed it, um, because I would have a tendency as a coach, uh, you know, to try and, you know, do some coaching. Uh, you know, the coaching in me would kind of overtake the dad. And then you combine the two and it really was not a good sounding situation. So while he was in college um, and in the minor leagues, I very, I don't think I ever, maybe one game, uh, in Erie, uh, and that didn't go too well. So therefore, even when I am uh, going, if I make it my way to a big league game, I, I try to be up high or in the outfield um, to kind of be more of a spectator and less of a dad. Do you think uh, this is something because the bit, I was with the Orioles this past year and so our big league manager, Brandon Hyde, um, would go to his kids games he would just sit down the line and he wouldn't say literally one word the entire time. And yet you have all these other parents who are like nonstop talking during the game. And it's like, here is a big league manager, not saying a single word and just watching his kids play. And it's just kind of like, I mean, do, do you think it provides any value at all? If parents are, are trying to talk to their kids during the game? None. Yeah. I Zero. Zip. Yeah. Nada. Not a, not a blessed thing. Um, and again, if I take myself back to Tyler at 12, and, you know, I really think, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I think it scarred Tyler. Um, and 
it, it probably took me five to six years after that to really understand the magnitude uh, and the weight of expectation. And so, you know, as a parent, being involved in a game is never going to be a positive from the perspective of baseball is hard. It's extremely challenging, whether you're a fielder, a hitter, a position player, you know, it's instinctual uh, and it's hard when you're in the midst uh, and, and immersed in the flow of the game and any distraction of any kind can take your mental part, your mental discipline and break it down. And I think, you know, we're always wondering, our children are trying to please us as parents. And if you combine that with the truly difficult uh, elements of the game of baseball, uh, I think if you sit out, you enjoy the ball game, you cheer when it's time to cheer, uh, and you recognize that physical errors are going to happen, mental errors are going to teach uh, our teaching moment, and just allow the flow of the game to happen. And then after a game, you know, the discussion should be more about having fun. Did you have fun? You know, what did you learn? And just kind of keep it at whatever they want to discuss. But being actively involved in a ball game, you know, from a, you know, just trying to scream and yell, it's not a video game. You know, there's nothing we can tell our children in the midst of a game. You know, let's get a hit. Let's throw a strike. You know, all this kind of stuff. It's not a video game and it's out of our control. And so therefore, I always feel that it's best, uh, you know, to kind of sit and enjoy the journey, the game. It's part of the journey. Uh, and the more that you can kind of take that um, dynamic and recognize that I'm going to enjoy watching my son participate and then worry less about the results. Um, I think you'll, you'll have a better, uh, relationship with your son. I think you'll have a better understanding of the game, um, and the expect, the weight of expectation, uh, and just kind of let things take their course, you know, practices are more, you know, if you're out in the backyard playing catch, you can talk more about the intricacies, um, you know, from a developmental standpoint, but in a game, that's not the time to coach. It's not the time to dissect The game is about reaction. And being instinctual, you know, practice time, you can kind of have more of a time with the dialogue as it pertains to things that you would do differently or like them to do differently. Yeah, I mean, from a hitting perspective, you have one tenth of a second to make a decision if you're swinging or not at the pitch. And for me that night facing Tower, it felt like even less than that because he was throwing like, geez, 97, 98. But my point being is if your focus is on anything except the baseball and hitting it and your parents or you know whatever it is I mean you're already your chances of already success are so low I mean they're they're hurting you more than they're more than they're helping and I think it's it's, it's going to be good for parents to hear this and understand that they need to have the expectation when they go and watch their kid play that he is going to mess up and fail because it's designed in the game Right. Unless he goes four for four with four home runs every single game or if he's a pitcher and strikes everyone out and always hits or throws a ball and it hits the, the guy he's throwing it to right in the chest. 
I mean, I've never seen a player do all that every single day. So they, they need, I think the expectation does need to be like, he's going to fail today. Like he's going to mess up today. Like just like every other baseball player on planet earth, no matter what level it's at. And I think it's going to make for more, like you, you mentioned a better relationship with their son and it's going to, ha- they're going to enjoy the game more themselves watching it too. I mean, why do you think that there's so many parents out? Because I'm sure there's a lot of parents you have heard. It doesn't help that, you know, when they talk or say something during the game, but yet they continue to do it. Like what, is it just a self-control issue? I think more of it has to do with the competitive nature of youth baseball. And, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing more and more, and really if, if before, you know, uh, I get, you know, too old to be able to convey this message. It is truly my purpose to let parents know one singular element to the sport of baseball. We have to return it to the kids. I saw a social media post about above average six U travel baseball players that a team was looking for above average six U baseball players. And you have to stop and think for a second because I did not start playing competitive baseball, meaning little league until 10 years old. There was no such thing as travel baseball. And I stunk. I mean, I was God awful. I I couldn't hit water if I fell out of a canoe in the middle of the Atlantic ocean. And, you know, when you try to tell a parent how hard it is uh, to hit a baseball. So here's what I used to do as a college coach every fall. We didn't do a fall world series like what's all the rage today. What we did is we had a big cookout. I invited all the parents and it was a social activity. And I told every parent that our two best pitchers were going to warm up. And I set up an L screen and I put a parent in a batter's box and I put up the L screen. So the parent had to be behind the L screen. So the catcher would still be able to catch the ball. But I said, you can't leave this, can't vacate this area. I want you to stay right here. And we had pitchers that would throw, you know, in, in division three, I had three guys that were drafted and they all threw 92, 93 miles an hour. I said, I want you to look and see what it feels like to be in a batter's box when we have a guy throwing 90 plus with a curveball and a changeup. And I want you to see it and hear it. And I think for the most part that parents fail to have a true understanding of what it's like to be in that batter's box. It's not an easy thing because the number one thing that 90% of young student athletes, when they step in a batter's box, that they are dealing with is fear. And if we add the parents screaming and yelling, and then you have the opposing parents screaming and yelling, and then we're yelling at umpires and opposing parents and opposing coaches, and holy cow, stop the insanity. This is nuts. And now you're trying to have a six-year-old through 12-year-old face a young man that might be throwing a little bit harder for his age group. And I guarantee you that's a lot going on in the mind of that young student athlete. And I think what we come with, with, with video game technology and all these YouTube videos and all these people, uh, you know, that claim to be able to make young hitters, great hitters, we fail to recognize how difficult, just difficult trying to take a bat that let's give it two and three quarters. You know, it's really two and five eighths uh, diameter. And we're trying to hit a three uh, inch diameter round object. 
And we're trying to do that on a consistent basis. And it's hard. And guess what? When you're a pitcher and you're standing 45 feet away as a young man or 60 feet, six inches as a high school and college student athlete, and you have to throw a baseball over a 17-inch plate, and you have to do that consistently, we don't understand how hard that is to do. And the elite ones that are able to do that at the big league or minor league level, yes, they may look it make it look easy, but I can guarantee you it's not. And so the perspective as a parent is skewed because, oh, look at the video game. Oh, that young man is not throwing that hard. You should be able to get a hit. There's so many variables and so many things going through a young man's mind that if you looked and listened to all the travel ball parents in today's ballpark, and then you put yourself back into being a student athlete at whatever age, starting at six years old, as silly as that sounds, we're really trying to manipulate the outcomes and we're trying to race to a destination. And to me, that's just taking the game away from the kids. Yeah. Well, it's good that we have, you know, people like you out there spreading the good word. And, um, you know, I we'll get, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the, the book that you just got done writing and publishing with, with my good buddy too, Brian Eisenberg, um, because it's a great, you know, great resource. I, I already read it all at, learned a ton about, you know, all the just rules and intricacies of the recruiting process. Your son, this is a, this is another thing I wanted to, to pick your brain about. Your son was a first round pick twice, right? He was a first round pick out of high school and he didn't sign. Why didn't he sign out of high school when let's be honest, if you're a first round pick, you're, you're going to be a millionaire. And if you, you know, especially being a pitcher, you, you take that chance of going to college um, you could get hurt. I mean, there's a lot of different things that could happen. And I know even, even from an educational standpoint, there's other things that, you know, they can put into a, if it doesn't work out and you sign at a high school, we'll make sure we can cover your education down the road too. So what was the thought process, um, like for Tyler when he was a first round pick out of high school? Well, when I was drafted out of high school, um, I had some, you know, circumstances that were unique. Um, my parents had passed away. I, I lived on my own. I had my own apartment as a junior in high school and senior in high school. Um, and when I was given the opportunity to sign and get a check for $50,000, recognizing that first round picks um, back then in 1981 were getting 200000 and um you know, so to me, $50,000 was life altering. And then I went on as I went through those four years of, you know, the college student ages of 18 to 22 and watched all my peers have the college experience and all that that entailed. Um, you know, the ebbs, the flows, the ups and downs, you know, the studying, the parties, the interactions, um, just being a college student. I had a different perspective. It's not something you can do when you're 27 or 30 or 35 and you have a family. And then you take somebody of Tim Corbin's, um, who he is as a man, as a mentor. So what is that worth? You know, what are those four years worth? You know, and I used to, I took abuse 
my son uh, was scorched on social media. I mean, that's scarring. I'm sure that he, to this day, still is scarred from some of the things that adults wrote. So it was not an easy decision. It wasn't a flippant, let's just go to college and we don't want to even think about the Blue Jays and the $3 million. And, you know, and I, and I think from the dynamic of if you are as good as everyone is telling me, telling you, by going to college, you're going to be best served in your skill set development, and you're going to see what the highest levels of that college, um, you know, college baseball can bring, which is the SEC. And if you're that good, we'll get another bite at that apple. We may not be a, you may not be a first round pick. Now, I give my son a lot of credit because. I was the only dog in the group saying no. Every other person in his circle, including his advisor, was saying you have to take you know this amount of money. This will not happen again. So it really led to, you know, I wanted him to understand the things that could potentially happen. Potentially happen, meaning you could go there and you could stink. Uh, then you would know, you know, what your life needed to be above and beyond baseball you could go there and be good and be drafted and reach the big leagues and you'd have a, a Vanderbilt degree you could go there and be really good and potentially be a top you know two-round draft pick get your money have a degree and, and go on and have a quality of life and oh by the way you might win a national championship and be part of something that'll be forever and fortunately for Tyler I still believe that the weight of expectation and the need to prove people wrong um, probably set his development back a, a few years. Uh, but at the end of the day, if he goes to anywhere, you know, in a business capacity and they see on his resume, you know, Lawrence Academy, which is a prestigious boarding school in Massachusetts and Vanderbilt University, the first thing they're going to say is educated man. And oh, by the way, you were pretty good in baseball. Um, and I think what we fail to recognize as parents is the vehicle and the platform of baseball is simply a trade-off. And we're going to trade athletic ability for academic excellence. And we're going to allow baseball to provide us with opportunities over and above money. And it takes guts. It takes um, really a mental toughness. And I would venture to say that it took Tyler until 2019, five years after he was drafted, to be able to put all of the uh, social media expectations, the burdens of what that come with being a first round draft pick. Um, and he was able to finally put that all behind him. And I believe in my heart that that will serve him for another 10 years. It'll help him be a big leaguer for another 10 years, but we get lost in money. We get lost in status. And at the end of the day, we return back to the little leaguer. 
and it's a game. And I think too many parents get caught up with the destination and they fail to live in the now of the journey and allow the journey to take place. Uh, the destination is going to come for all of us, uh, regardless of when it's going to happen. Uh, there comes an end of a line, you know, and it becomes, it becomes clear that we didn't recognize all the fun and all the excitement, the ups and the downs and the ebbs of the flow of the journey. So, you know, for me, I think Tyler now is at a place where he was best served by going to Vanderbilt. And I think that will help him going forward. Taking a quick break from this episode to uh, remind everyone, if you haven't already, make sure to go and subscribe and sign up for my email list, Patrick Jones Baseball forward slash develop. If you're a coach out there or a parent who wants to learn more information and wants to continue to grow to help more and more players, I'm going to be putting more content out through my email than I am anywhere else via social media. So um, patrickjonesbaseball.com forward slash develop. Sign up for my email list and you'll be getting a bunch of free content. It's all free free content on everything player development related, podcast related, and everything in between. So patrickjonesbaseball.com forward slash develop. Yeah, I I think uh, the journey is the fun part, right? Of not just this baseball thing, but of life in general. It's that is the, that's the fun. Like, you know, the, the challenge, the journey and all the obstacles along the way. He did go to Vanderbilt, which is a big time power five school one of the you know you could argue the best in the country one of the things that i see all the time now is kids being recruited even earlier right because tyler's closer to my age and so i mean nowadays i mean i don't know when vanderbilt started recruiting them but i see so many of these bigger schools recruiting kids eighth grade ninth grade and getting you know i was before we did this podcast i was on perfect games website looking up some different schools and they have, there was this one school that's already got 10, 10 to 12 commits for the 2025 class as a freshman. That's absurd. What, I mean, why, what, how does it help a player and what good does it do a player to commit as a freshman in high school? Because they really don't have any leverage in a sense of if they don't continue to perform, the school's just going to drop them and go somewhere else you know, and they can't bring in, you know, 20 kids every year. I mean, it, what advice would you give to someone? Because I know your son was a top prospect, you know, in high school too. I mean, did you, or did you steer away from certain programs because they were prone to over-recruiting? Absolutely. <laughs> Some really prominent programs. Uh, you know, and I think Going back to Tyler specifically, Tyler didn't really make his uh, decision until his junior year, going into the junior year um, at Lawrence Academy. Um, And he really had the opportunity to commit to a few of his dream schools, you know, much earlier. So to answer your question, zero, a big zero. I am... Absolutely. When I talk to parents and and they ask me, you know, why other boys are, you know, committing to schools, I think it has to do with they are afraid that they might not get that opportunity again. And why do coaches do it? Because if a student athlete and his family want to take themselves out of recruiting as an eighth grader or a ninth grader, okay, I have no risk. 
I'm not committed in any way, shape, or form until November of that student athlete's senior year uh, to provide him a letter of intent that guarantees his money for one year. One year. A lot of parents think, oh, you know, my son's going to commit to school ABC and they're giving him a scholarship and they think everything's great for four years. In reality, it's one year. And I see a lot of those student athletes, they, not all, but a lot of them kind of, they lose their drive. They lose that focus. And a co- what's in it for a college? Well, if a college says we're going to get you 50 cents on the dollar uh, and you want to take yourself out of recruiting, by all means, we'll take you. But right there, if you say 10 student athletes have committed to a college for 2025 class, I can promise you not all 10 will find their way to that school. And that's a fact. Um, and when you try to understand what college recruiting, what it actually entails, meaning you have to be able to perform and you have to have a skill set that is going to be a now tool when you hit campus. Now, you know, as Xavier, you can't go to any college. I don't care, Division One, Two, Three, JUCO, NAI, step foot on campus as a high school graduate, competing with men physically and mentally that are mature, and they are competing at their physical best, and you show up as an 18-year-old and your expectations are to play right away, that's probably the, the hardest thing to do. And I, when I talk to parents, I tell them the minute that they commit, regardless of the year, if you're not physically, mentally, academically preparing to step foot on that college campus on the fall of your, your son's freshman year, you're doing it all wrong. You're doing it all wrong. You better be physically ready to compete, meaning you better be in that weight room and have a discipline of being up early in the weight room, getting after it. I don't care if you're eighth grader or ninth grader. If you committed, you better start getting your body ready. Mentally, you better be ready for 18 hours a day. You better be ready for 18 hours a day in a classroom, in a weight room, on the field, in a cage, every single day that you're on campus. And guess what? You get one day off a week, one day. And on that day, that's what a day off, wink, wink, you better be practicing. Because if you're not optionally working out, you're going to fail. You're going to be dropped. You're going to be go- falling behind. So there's zero to be gained, but yet we find student athletes that want to be able to say, I'm so proud and I'm grateful and I'm blessed and I'm committing to so-and-so university. The university did not commit to you. You committed to the university. The school is basically saying to you, hey, absolutely, you want to commit to us? We'd love to have you, as long as you progress at the rate that your your skill sets currently show us. But if you don't progress and you don't get better and you don't maintain your place and your stature within your age group, sorry, no room at the end. And they, what the kids like to call, and my fiance doesn't think I know the word, you get ghosted and roasted in a heartbeat. And I had a young man last year at a SEC school, not Vanderbilt, and it was his summer before he was about to be a freshman. And the coach told him, we're going to honor your scholarship, but you're not going to play. You're not going to have a spot on our team. And sorry, but, you know, that's just the way it goes. We had too many seniors return. No room at the end. This was an elite pitcher. (laughs) 
And he couldn't go to that school. Now what? Now where do I go? Now I have to find the it's musical chairs. They have to find a spot. So to answer your question, question, it does no good. I tell every student athlete, if you're not going to wait until your junior or senior year, when you're physically mature, you're mentally mature, you have an idea logistically, geographically, where you'd like to go to school, you have an idea academically, what you'd like to pursue, and athletically, you kind of have an idea where your skill sets will fit. If you're not going to wait till that, that means you don't trust yourself. And if you don't trust yourself in the eighth and ninth grade and you're picking a school because of the notoriety of the uniform, it's going to come back to haunt you for the rest of your, your career. It really is. So wait until you're physically, athletically, academically ready to make some decisions. I saw on Twitter the other day, I forget who posted it. Um, and it said it was a statistic that said over 70% of the kids who commit before their junior year verbally commit over 70% never even make it to that like on campus to that college they committed to, or maybe it was before their sophomore year. I forget who said that um, statistic, but that was mind blowing. And I quite frankly, believe it. I mean, I, there were, I'm not going to name the school, but there was another sec school, not Vanderbilt um, who had a kid who was um had, was committed to a kid or not committed, as you mentioned, the kid was committed to this school since he was a freshman in high school. This past year, he graduated as a senior in high school, getting ready to go to that school, played summer ball, big time travel baseball program. This particular school went to go watch him play and they called him up two weeks before he was supposed to move in to on campus and said like we we think it's going to be best if you go somewhere else you're not going to play here and this the kid had been committed and signed with this school for four years and so it's like stories like that it's like man i mean there's there's you know it's it's just crazy i mean how cutthroat and i like to hear i like how he's talking about about ghosting how cutthroat it really is i mean this is a business to these coaches, and I understand it from their their livelihood perspective. I get all that, but I, I still think at some point, you know, it's kind of like, are you in this solely for your own livelihood, or are you also in it to help guide some of these kids too? Well, my number one goal always. Uh, I've been I have baseball process. I've been doing college consulting for over thirty years, and. I have parents that I've worked with, their sons never played travel baseball. Their sons didn't even start high school baseball, but yet their sons ended up playing college baseball. Their sons ended up playing division one college baseball. Their sons ended up starting on division one college baseball teams and played on the Cape. So I have like a background that I can legit legitimately tell parents Here's how this process really works. You want to know how it really works? College coaches at all levels have this term called roster manipulation. They're in it to win it. And if you're part of the crew that can sail that ship and win, you're welcome aboard. If you're not, sometimes you don't even get a life raft. Sometimes you just get tossed overboard. And those are some stone cold facts. And if you don't know what college recruiting really entails, and you're looking at this as a status symbol, as a family, being able to say, my son 
committed to go to school X because the name on the front elicits, wow, you must be really good. You are headed for a bad ending. It's not going to be a soft landing. And that's a fact. You know, I get a lot of people on social media that always will say, well, you know, you're selling dreams a dollar at a time. No, no, I don't sell any dream. What I do and how I do is I work with factual information. They, they say that to I, you? Oh, I have parents all the time. Oh, my goodness. I lived in Louisiana and I'm not from Louisiana and I, I'm not going to spend time telling you the stories. But when that's old school, they don't do travel ball down there. They just do high school and Legion. And guess what? The high school coach is the Legion coach. And if you don't play Legion, you don't play for me in the spring. So you don't have a lot of wiggle room. And here I come moving into town because my sons were going to schools down south. And I'm trying to tell parents, hey, listen, that's not the way the world really works. And I got roasted, roasted. And a couple of parents would always say, well, first guy's through the wall, I'm going to get bloodied. Uh, well, all the guys that I work with, and, I, and you can look them up, Caleb Roper, he went to Tulane. And he was a center fielder in high school, told his mom and dad that his had no shot at being a, a center fielder in college that he was going to be a pitcher. That was when he was in the 10th grade. And now he's a triple-A pitcher with the White Sox, but he got a degree and it was Friday starter at Tulane. Mason Coppins played a Jesuit, arguably the top team in the state, really prestigious high school in New Orleans. Never probably played 40 innings of high school baseball was a starting center fielder for four years at Northeastern university, went to an NCAA regional, and oh, by the way, he won a silver bat in the Cape Cod League. He played with a starting center fielder in Cape Cod. My point is, I know how to evaluate student athletes. And what I don't know, I go and get from scouts, trusted major league scouts, and I get their feedback. And I create an understanding of where a student athlete is today, what he's capable of doing tomorrow, and how to go about doing that. And then I find a placement that fits for that student athlete. Sometimes it requires a postgraduate year. Sometimes it's going, we're going to go to a, an NCAA Division II school, a Division III school. But guess what? An NCAA Division III school of Tufts, Bates, Bowden, um, Emerson, these are prestigious academic institutions that are right up there with Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth and, and Penn and Princeton and so on. And when you tell parents and you shed light on the fact that the bottom line is about academics because the chances of your son playing professional, you went to Xavier University. That's a good school. That's a great university. And you played in an NCAA regional with Oregon. I remember the regional and that's big time college baseball. And if you looked on that field on that night, there probably, I think on that field, there were eight big leaguers nine big leaguers with Oregon uh, and Xavier had a couple of uh, draft picks that year, but you don't have a lot of guys playing big league baseball out, out of those four teams. And so look at the academics. So when you're talking to parents, you really have to have somebody that has a good understanding of what your son is capable of, where he's at now, what he's capable of, of doing tomorrow and what's a good environment, a good fit for him academically and athletically. That's the bottom line. You commit your freshman year, do you even know where the weight room is or the library is? How close are the dorms to your field? Tyler had to walk one and a half miles from the dorms to Hawkins Field. Now, why is that a big deal? 
you know when you come home from a road trip on Sunday night, the bus doesn't drop you at the dorm. The bus drops you at the, the field. And you have to walk from the field to your dorm with your equipment bag. So when I tell parents the story of it's raining on a Sunday night, you get dropped off. You just had an eight-hour bus ride. You get dropped off. And guess what you got to do? You got to carry your, your equipment bag and everything back to the dorm. And, oh, by the way, it's a mile and a half away. What Those are the realities. So know your campus, know your layout, know your geographics, know your city that you're going to be going to. Uh, there's so many variables with college, but yet we want to commit when we're an eighth grader or a freshman. Don't you want to know how many outfielders are in that class? How many pitchers are in that class? How many guys graduate? You know, I, I bring a roster to a call to a family's house. And this just happened two weeks ago. Student athletes, a, a, a catcher. And I said, uh, you know, you're committing uh, for this school. I said, are you aware that they have three catchers that are freshmen on their roster right now? No, it's not a big deal. They'll be juniors when I get there. I, oh, okay. I said, so they'll be juniors. I said, but you'll be a freshman. Well, guess what? At least one, probably two of those juniors are going to stay through their senior year. And that means your junior, your freshman year and your sophomore year, your playing time is limited. I said, are you aware that there's two other catchers that are in your class that are being recruited? Yeah, but I'm better than them. Okay. I said, now we got six catchers that are going to be at that school for two years while you're there. You think they're going to keep six catchers on that roster? Uh, well, I know I'm good. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm asking you, do you think they're going to keep six catchers? Probably not. Okay. So, that's why the transfer portal is filled with thousands of student athletes because they thought that they were going to be able to play. They didn't know, but they thought they would be good enough. That's not good enough to me. If I'm going to choose to go to college, I'm going to know what the lay of the land is. I'm going to know who I'm competing against and what it looks like, what it feels like. And I'm going to prepare myself to be sure that I can play at that school. Yeah. Every kid is saying that, well, I'm the best one. So I'm going to, I'll be the one that ends up making it, but like you said, it doesn't actually it doesn't actually end up um, always being the case. Unfortunately, I do like I did uh, hear you say about travel baseball and how you don't like travel baseball before the age of fourteen. Could you elaborate oh, on that? Absolutely. We are led to believe. I will tell you this: travel baseball. Be, be, Let's go from 13 down to 6U. I didn't believe that 6U was actually a big deal, but after this weekend, I discovered it's a really big deal, <laughs> and you have to be above average at 6 in order to play. Let me tell you this. Think of the physical and the mental maturation of a 6-year-old to a 13-year-old. That's number one. Every travel ball program in America, their money is made with the younger ages. It is not made. At 14, you and above. That's a stone cold fact. Why is it made from 6U to 13 or 14U? Sheer numbers. Everybody wants to play travel baseball. So, therefore, I'm going to have 20 student athletes on a team, 15 to 20 student athletes. I'm not going to have one team per age group. I'll probably have two or three. And guess what they're going to sign up for? Lots and lots of lessons, not practices, but lessons. And guess what else they're going to do? They're going to buy all the gear because grandma needs a hooded sweatshirt and grandpa wants a hat. So we're going to buy all the gear for the travel team. And we need a $400 bat, a $300 glove. We're going to get all kinds of batting gloves, all kinds of elbow pads and wrist guards and all kinds of other stuff. We are learning to live 
life at six years old, how to find our way. As a baseball player, you grow from your peer group, meaning I want to emulate Jimmy because Jimmy's really fast. Jimmy's really good. I'm going to watch Jimmy because he's in the same grade as me. Well, now we grow and we learn from adults. We're six, we're seven, we're 10, we're 11. We can't move like adults. We can't function like an adult. We don't think like an adult. We don't have pickup games anymore. We don't have stick ball. We don't have little league games. We don't have any of that anymore. It's not pastoral and playing a game. It's organized and there's screaming and there's yelling. And that guy can't possibly be eight years old. He's the size of a, he's the size of a senior in high school. He's got facial hair. And, and all of these things that go on at these little league games and the, I mean, these travel ball games, it's insanity. It's absolute insanity. And we are not letting kids be kids. Guess what? When I was a kid, there was a guy on my, in my age group named Dave Collins. He was a left-handed pitcher and he threw hard. If I fouled a ball off, Wow. Mission accomplished. I mean, I fouled it off. I can go back to the dugout with some pride because I actually fouled the ball off. That's how hard he threw. And today's world, if you don't get a hit, oh my goodness, you're a failure. And we are not allowing kids to develop a passion for the sport of baseball. That's the foundation. Without it, you won't be a player. You'll quit at 13 when that four hits and the big diamond hits. We are not letting them have a love a basic understanding, a basic um, kind of a, an involvement with teammates. So I had a parent about a year ago kept asking me why I was so adamant about being a good teammate. And it struck me as odd. I said, do you realize in every team, if I just said to, if I put a team out there of nine, eight-year-old boys, and before we Got up the bat. I say to every boy, I want you, each of you to fill out a lineup card. I guarantee you that each of those boys would know, okay, he's good. That one's good. I'm not so good. I mean, they'd, they'd have it pretty much down because they have a, an understanding of the hierarchy. But, you know, that was Little League in my day. And today's world, it's so structured. We have umpires. We have coaches. We have evaluators. We have, we have instructors. And if we go 0 for 4, it's nothing that a good lesson can't fix. Whereas I would watch guys in my peer group. And I remember at 10 years old, when I first started, I had a, a great uh, friend of mine who said, if you just keep your chin, and this was during a wiffle ball game. If you just keep your chin over the ball when you swing and you just allow it to stay over the ball, you're going to be, your eyes won't move and you're going to become a better hitter. And guess what? It clicked. It clicked in a, in a wiffle ball game. So because we have so much structure, because we have rankings, because we have uniforms, it's so organized that kids now look at the adults and say, oh, okay, I'll just let them figure it out. I don't need to be involved. I just need to get up in the morning, drive four hours for a doubleheader. I'm going to play against kids I don't even know. And oh, by the way, I'm not really excited about traveling four hours to play. We don't let them just ride their bikes and a glove and a bat on a, on a pair of handlebars and go play pickup baseball. Now, conversely, if I look at Latin American players, and my goodness, the, the landscape at, at the major league level is inundated with Ronald Asuna and Ozzie Albies, and, and we look at, uh, you know, Juan Soto. I mean, I, we could go on and on and on. 
they have fun. They smile. They're gregarious. You know why? Because they love the game of baseball. They don't look tired and mentally worn out like a lot of these guys that come up and they're mentally exhausted because, oh, I finally got here and now I'm supposed to do really well. Travel baseball at 6 through 13 is criminal. It's absolutely criminal. Now, I can say that as a dad. I, I never allowed my sons to play travel baseball until they were 14. And here's why. As a college coach, I went to some of these games, and I started listening to the coaches. Just throw a strike. Just put the ball in play. Let's, make, let's just make contact. Just put the ball in play. Just throw a strike. Yeah, that's going to help. That's great instruction. I'll, I'll write that down, and I'll use that. When my pitcher can't find the strike zone, just throw a strike. I'm going to mix that one in. And I was just saying to my, I remember saying to my boys, I want you to go to a college game with me and I want you to see how the boys play. My college team had fun. We stunk when I first took it over. But I used to tell every single student athlete that I recruited, when you come here, this is about your opportunity to be a student athlete we're going to have fun. We're going to be disciplined. We're going to be competitive and we're going to be aggressive, but we're going to have fun. That didn't mean we always won. That didn't mean every ending was, was, you know, cake and ice cream. But my point is, is travel baseball has become too structured. We, we trust gadgets and gadgets. We trust instructors who are going to teach us the right way to hit. The right way to hit is to have a bat meet a ball consistently. To try and tell parents they have the latest and greatest swing plane and launch angle, and this track man is going to fix your son in travel ball age groups is silly. It's absolutely silly. We need to give the game back to Little League. We need to give the game back to the Sandlots. We need to find adults who want to teach and instruct But what it used to be. I had a guy on social media, and I vehemently disagreed. There have been no better time to be a baseball player than today because the coaches are better. The technology is better. Technology at, at a six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and 12. Are you kidding me? Anybody watch the Little League World Series and see all those kids and the emotions? They It matters to them because it's their community. It's their Little League program. It's something they grew up with. They play with guys and, and friends. It matters to them. Travel ball. Now, my little Jimmy isn't playing shortstop. I'm going to bounce to the next team. Or I show up in an event and a really good team says, your son is really good. He shouldn't be playing with that group. He's not going to get anything out of it. We're better coach. We have better instructors. Come play with us. And we're trying to manipulate 10-year-olds. It's, it's truly gotten so far out of hand that if I reach one person, one, with a book, with a, a podcast, with a tweet, anything, and get them to understand, let your son go out. He's going to fail. It stinks, but he will learn and he right. will get better. And, and that's really what we need to kind of get parents to understand. It's a hard game, hard game. And the more times you fall, you get back up. You get back up, you get better. And that's the way it has to be. At six years old, it should just be about T-ball putting a bat on a tee, putting a ball in play, letting the boys field it, throw it, laugh, run, overrun a base. Do I want to – I promise you, you go to any 6U travel ball game, there's all kids of all shapes and sizes. Some are good, some are not so good. But we want them to be smiling and having some fun. 
We don't want them listening to umpires and parents screaming and yelling. That's not fun. Walter, what recommendations would you give for <clears throat> someone who, who might be listening to this? And, you know, let's just say they're maybe they are a junior right now and, and they're not getting recruited by anyone. You know, they're, they're not a big time prospect. Like what what should they do to get to get an opportunity to to get recruited by someone? Not necessarily power five, but I mean, just just get recruited by a college. Well, here's the deal. Uh, and these are numbers that are out there everywhere. 450,000 high school student athletes, 35,000 are going to play college baseball at all levels. But those are just facts. It's musical chairs. So let's say you have a love and you really have a passion. Division one is not going to make you a major league prospect. Uh, you look at any major league roster, you see players, junior college, NAIA, NCAA three, two, and one. It's not the, the level of college baseball. It's playing baseball at a higher level and developing skill set. If you're a junior in high school and you have a passion for the sport, first thing you need to do is have a true independent evaluation of who you are as a baseball player. What are your measurables? I am so tired of exit velocity off a tee. Uh, arm strength, all of these things. Okay, those are measurables, but what do you look like when the lights are on and the scoreboard is on? How do you compete and how can you help a college program win? That's what college coaches are looking for. Recognizing what is your role in the future? Are you a role player? Are you a utility player? When do you want to be told that you're probably not a middle of the infield kind of guy? You might be a third baseman. Heck, you might be a left fielder. Oh, by the way, you're a middle infielder. Have you ever caught? When do you want to know those things? Do you want to wait until you show up at a college campus and walk on? Or would you like to know that as a sophomore or a junior? So the number one thing that you can do as a student athlete is get a real evaluation. Somebody that knows how to evaluate what college players and higher level players look like. Number one. Number two, what do you look like academically? Because academically is going to help. And a lot of student athletes fail to recognize that the power of a transcript, that can help. Because I just said to a student athlete the other day, do you realize Division I baseball, specifically, their scholarships are tied to their team GPA? Same thing with football. Same thing with basketball, meaning they have to maintain a team GPA. So you're looking to be a walk-on. You're a very attractive student athlete. If not only athletically you have serviceable skill set, but you have a very strong transcript. And I always try to ask student athletes at their sophomore, their junior year, what are your realistic expectations? Where would you like to play? And if they throw out, inevitably, the guys that I deal with, everybody seems to think that I can pick up a, call, a phone and call Corbs and say, yeah, I got a guy, you know, he's from Indiana or he's really good. doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, and so once I get them to understand, here's where your skill sets fit. Here's where they project. And here's where, you know, some good schools. It's all about musical chairs. And the sooner that you have an understanding of who you are as a student athlete, and who you're capable of being, the better the process will go. If you're waiting to be plucked out of the golden tree of student athletes, and there are boys that develop later, especially pitchers, um, don't panic. 
you have options. Oh, by the way, postgraduate is a very prestigious uh, thing now because you're not using a year of eligibility. You know, in the world of Ivy Leagues, they call it a gap year. They tell you, we don't have room in our 2022 class, but our 2023 class, we have room. So if you want to study abroad or go find yourself walking the streets of Europe, whatever you choose to do, um, great. And we'll see you in 2023. And the same thing can happen in sports with, you know, regards to baseball. You do a postgraduate year. There are postgraduate schools all over the country. And no, that's not for the students that were bad people, which a lot of parents seem to think. It's really a prestigious, high academic opportunity. If, if I look at Phillips Andover, which happens to be in my backyards, or the Salisbury School, those are like the Harvard of postgrad schools. Parents from all over the world not athletes all over the world try to get their sons and daughters into these schools yet when i bring it up to parents oh he's ready to play at the college level right now and i oh okay uh, have you gone to a practice yet have you gone and watch any of these teams practice he's 145 six foot two and he's not going to be ready at a college campus at 145 um, so don't panic have an evaluation put a plan together Nobody has a plan. I, when I talk to parents, well, we really haven't started looking yet. Okay, well, your son's a junior. Now's the time to start looking. It's now's the time to start going on these campus tours. Um, and so if you have a plan athletically, have a plan academically, see where you fit academically, see where you fit athletically, you can get to those schools, either as a walk-on or, or as a recruited student athlete. But you need somebody to bring an awareness to who you are and how you're you're able to help them. I do this all the time. In fact, I had a student athlete from Concord, New Hampshire. He had committed to a Division I school. That Division I school transitioned into Division Three. He didn't want to play at the Division Three level. And oh, by the way, it was July, and he had just graduated in June. He had nowhere to go. He ended up at a very, very high-level Division I school, and was being recruited by five or more schools in July and got significant money. So my point is, is there's always room at the end if you have the ability at the, at the, as far as baseball skill sets and academically. If you have those two uh, you know, things in order and you have patience, we can find you opportunities. Yeah, focus on getting it done in the classroom and developing yourself as a baseball player. And, you know, as you just said, patience too, and everything will work out the way it's supposed to. All you can do is work your hardest. And the last time I checked, you know, worrying about offers um, didn't get you any offers. So I think that's that's something important to note too. Um, Walter, this has been a lot of fun, man. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I read your book. It was fantastic. You know, Brian Eisenberg, you know, helped with it too. And it's called Committed, the Guide to Developing College-Ready Recruits from Middle School through High School. I'm going to put that link in the show notes. Um, and I just, I can't recommend it enough for anyone who has a son who is in the, in the recruiting process or even before then too, you know, probably best even before then. So you now know what the expectation is going to be once he does become of age. I can't recommend enough. Again, it's, it's called committed the guide to developing college ready recruits from middle school through high school You can get it on Amazon. 
Um, again, I already read it. I flew through it. It's a great book. All the rules, all the NCA rules, everything's in the book. It's fantastic. It was really well done. So Walter, appreciate you coming on the show. And if there's anything else we can do to, to help, um, be more than happy to. Patrick, I appreciate you taking the time. I think this has been a great, uh, a great podcast and a great opportunity. Hopefully parents find their way as well as student athletes. And, uh, you know, just in closing with regard to the book, that is really a manual. It's a manual that you as a parent can basically have, you know, when your son is seventh grade all the way through high school and you can go back to it and use it as a resource. And uh, that's that's how Brian and I wanted it to be uh, a Q&A so that any parent that picked it up, regardless of where they lived in the world, could kind of say, yeah, that sounds like me. This is where we are. And I'm going to start reading it from this point forward. So I appreciate you giving me the time today to, uh, to speak with you and uh, and be able to uh, spend some time with a bunch of parents and student athletes. Thanks for Walter for coming on the podcast and and thanks to you all for listening. Um, I hope you learned a little bit something about the the college recruiting process and some of the things that go into it. Um, If you're not already, make sure to go subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Leave us a a rating and review and uh, make sure to follow me on Twitter at P Jones baseball. If you have any questions or anything um, about hitting or anything else, player development related, um, send me an email jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com and I'll do everything I can to, uh, to help you out. So we'll see everyone next week. And thanks again for listening.